Today on CityCast Denver, the King Super Strike is over and balance has returned to the grocery universe. But many of us aren't quite ready to resume the same old routine. One Republican lawmaker has a bonkers proposal that really got us talking. Plus, Black History Month starts next week, and we're looking at a new push to elevate a lesser-known and even lesser-understood chapter in Colorado's Black History. Today is Friday, January 28th, 2022. I'm Paul Caroli, and this is CityCast Denver. Welcome back to CityCast Denver, the show about the city with the best hockey team in the NHL right now. That's right, Bree. Oh, Paul. The Avalanche beat the Bruins last night, and they are number one. The Nuggets aren't doing bad either. Just oh, saying. Yeah? yeah. I would. I should actually not even bring this up because I only watched part of the game, and I don't know what happened against <laughs> the Nets, and I could have looked online, but I didn't. Scratch that. Um. <laughs> Well, we are back in uh, back at Westward in the Lindy Zimmer studio, as I think I'm going to start calling it. <laughs> Bree obviously is here, our regular host, Bree Davies. Hi, Paul. And we're joined again by Westward editor and founder, Patty Calhoun. Thanks for having me again. Patty, are you much of a hockey fan? No, I can say no, but I have gone to a few games. I went to Cornell, though. Oh. Big, big hockey school. Oh. Yeah. So I did, I got my fill there. For sure. I've seen hockey games at the Cornell Ice Arena. For, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, my dad, uh, he's a professor there. Oh, yeah. What does he teach? Uh, international finance. Oh, I never took that class. <laughs> Small world. <laughs> Well, we got um, we got some good topics today. There's been a, it's been an interesting week here in Denver. Um, but first up, this is just this was just a funny thing that I think caught Alexandra's eye. Uh, the Colorado State Legislature is back in action. They've been back for a couple weeks now. We're looking for big moves on behavioral health funding and housing this session. But the legislature can be a clearinghouse for all kinds of policy proposals. I mean, there's a lot of lawmakers and they got some weird ideas sometimes. This week, there was a doozy. Um, We heard about it thanks to Jesse Paul at the Colorado Sun. He reported that Republican state lawmaker Kevin Priola, who represents parts of Thornton and Aurora, has introduced a bill that would allow liquor stores to become more like grocery stores. Jesse Paul writes... The objective is simple. Give liquor stores the option to become a place where their patrons can pick up both brandy and broccoli, whiskey and watermelon, scotch and salmon. Patty, would you buy produce at a liquor store? Limes. In fact, that's what's kept me from getting scurvy during the pandemic, the limes that go with those the Corona limes lights. At the liquor store, sure. This is more complicated than you would think, though, because we had this grand discussion several years ago mm. that allowed the uh, grocery stores to have liquor, yep. wine and beer in it. And these kinds of, oh, excuse, no, just beer. But these kinds of issues are going to be really, really tricky because the grocery stores are not going to be happy, even if it were a good idea, which arguably... It mm-hmm. isn't. Yeah, I mean, there's this whole real estate dimension of like, the reason why a lot of liquor stores are where they are is because they're near grocery stores, so people can make two quick stops and go home and get everything they need. But yeah, that was my first reaction too. I thought about that same that same story from a couple of years ago. It was like, so we let grocery stores become more like liquor stores, and now we want liquor stores to become more like grocery stores? Is this going to be a full, we're going to do a full switcheroo here? 
But uh, I don't know. Bree, what was your response to this, uh, this news? It's so dumb. Yeah? I don't know a single... I've never been in a liquor store that seems like the owner would also want to run a grocery store. Running a grocery store is a ton of work. The overhead is not... Like, you spend a lot of money, you don't make a lot of money. Mm. Although, that could be... In talking about the strike this week, Kroger CEO making $22 million a year or whatever, clearly they're making some money somewhere. Mm -hmm. But I just don't see liquor stores having the interest or the infrastructure in carrying things like produce, which is a very um, delicate commodity in terms of like, liquor doesn't go bad in the same way that a banana does or whatever. And um, But I did love Jesse Paul's... uh, brandy and broccoli whiskey and watermelon scotch and salmon you couldn't pay me to buy salmon at a liquor store (laughs) i think he was just having fun as a writer with that sense of course um well brie i actually wanted to go a little deeper on this with you because i know you worked on this stuff for a while before coming to citycast um and specifically like how to lure a grocery store to a neighborhood so can you just Tell us a little bit about what that actually is, because that's the problem Priol is trying to solve, right? right. There's these food deserts where there are no grocery stores. People don't have access to fresh food. And he's saying, there's liquor stores there. Why not Why not let them sell fresh food to their communities? But you... Yeah, and I mean, in theory, I could see why this might have seemed like a good idea. The thing with grocery stores is you can't just... A grocery store isn't just going to go into your neighborhood because you need one. I mean, find a neighborhood that doesn't need a grocery store. Humans need food. Mm -hmm. So, but grocery stores are businesses. And in a capitalist system that we work under, they have to make money. Mm -hmm. And so they look at certain neighborhoods and say, "Mm, we won't make as much money as we need to or want to. So we're not going to go in there. So I see why this is like a thought. Oh, well, let's try to put some staple goods into a place that's already operating but it's it's just it's more complicated than that and that i think about the park hill golf course saga you know and the developer saying hey we're gonna get a grocery store to you they can't make that promise unless they have a grocer locked in for development that's gonna be there for sure they have a contract with them it's not up to the developer it's really kind of at the whim of these giant grocery conglomerates to say we want to build in your neighborhood because you're gonna make us enough money grocery conglomerates like say Kroger, Kroger, which owns King Supers. Right. What do those conversations look like? How do, how do, how do you convince a grocer? Like, what do you, what can you do? Or is it really just, do they look at the numbers and say, Park Hill, not enough people? Yeah. Or not enough, you know, I mean, that's why you see, you know, I, I think about like the idea of the Whole Foods being the gentrifier's grocery store. Mm-hmm. They're going in where higher incomes are, period. So, and it's also because it's such a tough business, your inventory can go bad. You know what I mean? Like it's it's a very slim margins. Smaller grocery stores like we used to have or markets are harder for people to operate in a way that's sustainable. So that's why you don't see the mom and pop grocers anymore, which would be the ideal candidate, really. Patty, I want to ask you, what do you make of this whole discourse around food deserts and food justice. This strikes me as a really new thing, but I haven't been in Denver. I mean, I've been here for six years. Does this feel like a problem that's been around forever or is it new or what? What do you think? Oh, it's definitely been a problem that's been around, but it's been exacerbated by how neighborhoods have changed. The fact that a mom and pop really can't make it. But if you looked at some of those mom and pop markets 30 years ago, 
they had trouble keeping fresh produce because they just didn't have that much business. Mm -hmm. And then you saw them going out because it was expensive to run a business. Mm -hmm. But uh, Michael Hancock was just in Las Vegas, really, for a grocery convention to try to woo grocery stores here because it is one of the biggest complaints you get. Look at the uh, National Western Stock Show area. That's another one near Park Hill that is desperate for a grocery store. And it's it's been a long time... A problem, and uh, we did. So, we've always wanted to do a story on a demographic survey of Denver because, by what they sell in grocery stores, mm. because they used to be much more ethnically specific in the areas, like yep. where you would find um, chitlins and where you would find these other things. That isn't the case so much anymore, and probably that's because some of those grocery stores have disappeared. Mm. Well, in the neighborhood demographics change, I think about your King Supers, Paul. You have a very a much bigger kosher section than my grocery store, which has mm-hmm. a much bigger section that um, speaks to Spanish-speaking communities, right? So, but Patty, you're making a great point, especially if there were smaller independent grocers as well who were catering to those communities, then those communities are displaced. They don't have the business anymore. It's kind of this like back and forth that, I don't know, it's it's tough. It's it's a tough, I admire someone for trying to solve it. I just don't think liquor stores are the way to solve it. Well, because problem. you make the money on liquor. I mean, it, right. that's why grocery stores wanted to get beer Absolutely. and be able to have more opportunities and have a whole liquor store if they could. And that was a big fight going the other way. That's a really tough one. I mean, yeah, my liquor store, potato chips, limes, potato <laughs> chips and limes. I think that's totally. it. And you also see it with convenience stores, 7-Elevens that actually, when you see a banana in there, you, you're almost ready to faint because you know how hard it is mm-hmm. for them to keep that food fresh. But it is kind 7-Eleven of like an, has done some of that. Yeah, it's like an alien thing in a 7-Eleven when you see a banana. But I think about like the GES neighborhood and um, 7-Eleven is often the place to get food. So that might be the only place you can get a banana. And if you've had the hot dog, what's the problem with the banana? I know. So. It's true. I've <laughs> eaten the hot dog. I've eaten the nachos. Um, I love buying a banana from 7-Eleven. That's a go-to <laughs> snack for sure. I mean, there's uh, it's never the only ball. one. But, uh, <laughs> um, this whole thing has got me thinking, you know, with the strike and the King Super story, like, ha- have you all been reevaluating where you shop? in the city the last few weeks as a result of this whole upheaval and you know this is obviously a conversation in the ether right now uh, no <laughs> you seem you seem pretty down on the options i mean i have been often more than i'd like to admit uh ordering groceries from amazon because it's super easy mm-hmm. and the last couple through the pandemic grocery shopping's kind of a nightmare i mean i don't Blame the employees for not wanting to be in there. I don't want to be in there as a customer either. People are rude. It's that's that's a real thing. The like rudeness. Um, they're out of a lot of things. It's chaotic. It's just like I don't want to go to the grocery store. Yeah, I mean the rudeness. Look at the children's museum oh this week God. having to shut down because people don't want to wear masks and they're getting upset. <laughs> At the Children's Museum. I know, that's really tough. Now, I have never ordered groceries online. I have gone to grocery stores. My go-to grocery store is the Safeway at 26th and Federal. And if you wanted to see how a city is changing, what is sold at that grocery store from when I moved into that neighborhood where there was almost no produce and you would get nothing. And I could tell you what people were buying with food stamps, but I'm not going to share that on this family hour. <laughs> but, and now it is, it has aisles named after neighborhoods and streets in Denver. And it's very upscale huh. compared to what it used to be. But 
I've been going to grocery stores regularly, partly because I want to know what everyone out there is experiencing. Hmm. Same reason you don't want writers in their basements all the time. You want them to be out there seeing what happens. And a lot of great stories come when you're talking to people in checkout lines. Yeah. Not when you're talking to them from six feet away, but still... The good stories you get are when you're out with people who are really thinking about what their life is like in this city. I had exactly a conversation like that last week talking to the cashier at Save-A-Lot on Leedsdale, which is a discount grocery store. I was just, I chatted very briefly with her about, you know, what it's like to work there. We were there because we were exploring other options during Leedsdale the strike. Leedsdale what? Just curious. Oh, I thought you might ask. I don't know Sorry, if I can Paul. tell you the cross street. Um, <laughs> Is it near something? Oh, uh, it's by a Burger King and... Uh, oh, it used to be a Safeway maybe at Quebec? Uh-huh, yeah. Oh, it used to be a Safeway. Yeah, well, save a lot now. Interesting. Serves uh, the Hispanic community of the area uh, predominantly, at least it seems that way. I asked her what, you know, what it's like working there lately, and she had only nice things to say. I went and did some research. Save a lot. Operated by... A company called Levers. It's like a family company called the Levers Company. It's based out of Franktown. Employee-owned grocery store chain. Discount grocers. Save a lot. There's like three or four in Colorado. They have a a small grocer in the Highlands called Levers Locavore. Yeah, All which used to be a save a lot. Used to be a save a lot. Yeah. I just thought that was great. I, I want to know everything about that. And why they aren't in Park Hill or why yeah. they're not being wooed maybe for the National Western because you do see a National Grocers. National Natural, Natural grocers, yeah. Which got its start here as Vitamin Cottage. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say that was also hmm. local in Glendale. Hmm. So, All right, well, I think that's probably a pretty good place to stop. Um, let's take a short break before we get into our next topic. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Wine Board. Because the wine community here is like surprisingly robust. I mean, think about Bigsby's Folly and Infinite Monkey Theorem here in Denver alone. And there are urban wineries all across the Front Range. Then there's the Western Slope, Peonia, I mean, Palisade, hello, Palisade Wine, are you kidding me? It didn't used to really be a thing, but from what I hear, it's very much a thing now. There are more than 165 wineries across Colorado to explore, and they produce all sorts of wine that reflect our unique culture and climate. So finding a label that you're going to love is easy, no matter where your adventure takes you. Discover it for yourself and support local winemakers at coloradowine.com. That's coloradowine.com. All right, and we're back. Uh, we got another good topic here. This is something that you flagged, Patty. I had not seen this, but earlier this week, two Colorado congressmen, Joe Nagoose and Ken Buck, introduced new legislation to start the process about creating a new national park or maybe a national monument here in Colorado for Deerfield, which is a really fascinating chapter in Colorado history. It was the largest black homesteading settlement in Colorado, founded in 1910, Around 300 residents lived there uh, before it was wiped out by the Dust Bowl. But Patty, before we get too much more into it, what what is it about Deerfield that captured your imagination this week? Well, it's not the only black farming community that was set up in the teens and 20s when people really wanted to take advantage of being with people they liked and really carving out their own destiny. And 
this one actually disappeared before the Dust Bowl. I mean, it was pretty much gone in the 20s hmm. because the economy just couldn't support it. But for a while, it had its own stores and its own restaurants. And there were up to 300 people living. You look at these photos of them picnicking and what they were experiencing, creating this ideal world where they could grow grow for the future. It was it was lovely, and there were several in Kansas, and I think many of the people came out from Kansas. But just the realities did it did away with it in the twenties. And now, if you go, there are only a few things. There's really maybe one place still standing, and a little hovels. And then you also have development coming out towards it. It's near Greeley, so you want to remember what it was like for these people. You know, Lincoln Hills is where, which was a recreational area, has a whole exhibit devoted to it in History Colorado. But this has been more forgotten, and people go out and study it periodically. And I thought last year what happened when they pushed Camp Amachi, which is a national park. It, uh, park monument, and you have Sand Creek, which is a national historic site, what it means to remember these places, even when there's not much left. And if you go to Camp Amachi, there ha- wasn't a lot left, but a local high school group has been working on it for two decades hmm. and reminding people of what happened to Japanese Americans in World War II. And we should be remembering what happened to people who just tried to create their own utopia in Colorado and the challenges. Mm-hmm. Well, and following that you know, the the sort of um, magic of the Wild West that we hear so much about as people in Colorado, but it rarely in that picture do you see Japanese um, people represented or uh, indigenous people, or in this case, black communities represented, even though they were integral to the establishment of the West just as much. And so that's really exciting to me that we might be able to um, commemorate and bring that up to something that so now when you're a kid and you're studying this in school or you're going to History Colorado, you know, and you're learning about Lincoln Hills, you're also learning about the homesteading aspect of um, black Coloradans and having a place to go to see and celebrate and learn about that would be I would love that. I mean, I'd love that as an adult, but I especially think that would be resonant for me as a kid. And you think about the parallel development at exactly the same time when the KKK yeah. was growing so strong in Colorado through the teens and into the 20s. And, and that these folks were still like, we're going to try to build our utopia no matter what. Well, I have to say the people involved were the part of this story that caught my attention, specifically the main dude, Oliver Toussaint Jackson. I'm not sure if that's how to pronounce his name, but I'm doing my best. Um, I read a little bit about him this morning. This guy seems like a real like Western like maverick like one of these classic Western characters. He was from Ohio, like me, so I like that. Came to Colorado in 1887. So this is something I didn't realize about Deerfield. I always thought it was black people from the South, part of the Great Migration, coming West and setting up homesteads. It was, in fact, people from Denver leaving Denver to go establish this town in northern Colorado out on the Eastern Plains. And this Oliver Toussaint Jackson, I'm, I'm quoting now from the Colorado Encyclopedia, Jackson proceeded alone without the support of black leadership. The black moneyed interests and other black bourgeois did not support him, in part for political reasons. Many of those in the new black leadership were affiliated with the party of Lincoln, while Jackson supported Democratic candidates and worked for a Democratic governor. 
Jackson was a hard man for Denver's black leadership to fathom. He did not align himself behind a partisan leader, but instead tried to apply the popular, quote, back to the land and colony ideas of the day while seeking support from anyone who could help. Again, this is something that we need to be elevated in our history. So we know that, you know, this kind of a personality, like you're saying, is like the prototypical Wild West, go out on your own, establish mm-hmm. what you want to see in the world, like story. Mm-hmm. And it's a black man. That's amazing. Yeah, like the diversity of the black community at that time. Yeah, and like the different that it's not a monolith, the right? Segregation and the racism of the time. And like this is an era where uh, Elitches was the most like popular entertainment destination of the day in Denver and black people weren't allowed to dance at Elitches. I read right. that this morning in... Remembering Lucille, a great book about a, a black woman teacher of the time. And by, Who grew uh, up in my neighborhood in Barnum. <laughs> of course, by Polly E. Bugros McLean, uh, a great book. But what just a fascinating story, this Deerfield place. Way, way more interesting than I, than I even realized just hearing about it in passing the last few years. I've talked to so many people who are Denver natives who had never Didn't heard know. of it. Never. never heard of it. That it's not taught about in schools. And it's also very, especially now when you're looking at drought, Talk what dry land farming. And so you, the back to the land movement was so mm-hmm. great and it was encouraged for blacks, whites, immigrants, you name it. But what, the kind of farming they did basically set us up for the Dust Bowl. Mm. Oh, that's mm. a whole other. The, plant, the eternal planting and plowing. So that's why you had millions of pounds of dust flying <laughs> through the air 10, 10 years later. Mm. So something else about this that kind of like got my brain gears turning is the this idea of like how we remember our history reflecting something about us now. Patty, the people who are introducing this bill to recognize Deerfield, Joe Neguse, the Democrat from Boulder, and Ken Buck, the Republican from Weld County, or as my father-in-law likes to call it, Free Colorado. What do you think this says about Joe and Ken? I think it says you cannot stereotype that you could because you could not find two more different on the surface politicians, Mm. but that they both are interested in pushing this. And it's not the only push to to remember Deerfield lately, but certainly the most interesting combination of people pushing it. I also just want to say something to what you were pointing out about the like present day, how we view history. And I think about the Chicano civil rights movement. Part of that was bringing curriculum to students that taught their own history. And so it may seem like a radical idea in this moment, but 25, 50, 100 years from now, if we can reframe that history now, it will be part of our story that was never not, you know? It'll be something that's just always been there, which is something that I I think is really important. It's like we have to consistently reevaluate and reexamine who we are as a state and a city in particular, but um, so that the next generations can say, oh, this is the Denver or this is the Colorado that I know and have learned about. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't been there, be sure to go to the Black American West Museum, which is in the old uh, Dr. Justina Ford house where she had her medical practice because she wasn't allowed to practice at local hospitals. So she delivered 7,000 babies there. Many of whom I think 
descendants of the babies that she delivered are still, I've met people who are like, oh, Dr. Justina Ford delivered my mom or delivered my grandma. And it's great. They've gotten some grants lately. So they're doing a big, they're doing a major renovation of that building, which is really important to see. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. And they're, of course, involved in this Deerfield push for recognition too, which is great. I mean, just an interesting institution doing cool work in Denver, worth a visit. As we head into Black History Month. Yeah. (laughs) Of course. Um, We have to talk about one thing. (laughs) Oh, no. National parks, right? Oh, yes. The the, the whole idea with this legislation is like, let's talk about, let's start a process and evaluate whether or not this should be a national park or maybe a national monument. Uh, Whenever anyone talks about national parks in Colorado, the main concern is loving them to death. Too Mm. many visitors destroying the natural beauty, destroying the environment, is that a concern with Deerfield right now? Am I thinking too far ahead? You are thinking way too far <laughs> okay. ahead. As someone who's been to Amachi and has spent a lot of time at the Sand Creek mm-hmm. National Monument, no one goes to these places. There mm-hmm. are very, very mm-hmm. few. But the people who are assigned there from the National Park Service are so interested in preserving heritage and history and being very involved with the communities. Uh, the Sand Creek Massacre site, it finally has set up... Um, a library and archive in Eads, which is really helping Eads' economy, which isn't saying much. I mean, there's not a lot going on in Eads, but that is helping them. You do not have to worry about these sites being overrun. And even Deerfield, which is closer to some urban areas, I can't imagine that's going to be an issue. People are still going to be going to hear the elk bugle at National <laughs> Rocky Mountain National Park. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like thinking about uh, a future Deerfield being a like educational resource for like the University of Northern Colorado and Greeley. I can imagine that being a signature program for that university. Yeah, that would be cool. Anytime we can add to our park system too. It's one of those things that really makes America pretty cool mm-hmm. that we have these established spaces. Mm-hmm. All right, let's leave it there for today. Um, last thing. Fried chicken. We're still working on it. We're still researching. <laughs> we heard from a lot of you this week. Patty, I have a bit of a grudge. I think you uh, <laughs> you spoke very, very fondly about the post. And I think you maybe put your finger on the scale because a lot of people called in about the post. I don't it's know good. exactly what's I'm, happening. I'm with Patty. They're opening a new one February 8th in my neighborhood. Oh, really? 1575 Boulder. Really what? in my neighborhood. The old Lola. Wow. Oh. Well, I'm just saying we got a heavy favorite here. And I want other contenders. That's what I want from people this week. Who is making fried chicken good enough to take on the post? Because we need to taste those. You know, another the grind is another place people loved in Cherry Creek. Fried chicken just closed. I mean, that's one of the issues. Yeah. I think I think you've got the hot chicken uh, contamination here. I know. I was kind of worried about that. I was like, do we do a separate hot chicken? Because hot chicken People is infiltrated. Mm-hmm. Well, and that is not something we've had before in, mm-hmm. in Denver, really. Well, if there's a hot chicken that's as good as what they're doing at the Post, I, I want to hear about it. I want people to call in. Leave us a voicemail with your name and neighborhood. We'll consider it. We're picking our finalists. Our phone number is, of course, 720-500-5418. And uh, stay tuned Next couple of weeks, we're going to do that fried chicken thing. It'll be fun. When Peyton's back from her wedding. And we have a special guest chicken fanatic who will be taking your place, Paul, since you don't eat meat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited about it, though. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be listening. <laughs> That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. Our producers this week were me, Paul Caroli, and Alexander McMahon, as well as Lizzie Goldsmith. 
Peyton Garcia writes our morning newsletter. At least she normally does. This week she was out on her honeymoon. Congrats, Peyton. Filling in on the newsletter this week was our regular host, Bree Davies. I was helping out a little bit too. Our music is by Los Mocochetes with additional mixing by Tyler Lindgren. Plus more on today's show from the local group Blue Book. If you like what you're hearing right now, they've got a new album coming out soon and we've got all the links you need to find it in our show notes. If you haven't already, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at CityCastDenver. Tell a friend about us the next time you see him, maybe in the grocery line. You can sign up for that daily newsletter and learn more about us at denver.citycast.fm. Goodbye. <laughs> Have a great weekend, everyone. Did you say goodbye? Say goodbye. 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 Say it with a gun to my head. <laughs> goodbye. Good, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.